Hey there. This podcast is brought to you from aboutmeditation.com. Check out our free How to Meditate mini course. Five easy lessons that teach you how to meditate in minutes. www.aboutmeditation.com Welcome to the One Mind Podcast from aboutmeditation.com. My name's Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. On One Mind, we explore different angles on meditation, mindfulness, and health. We interview experts and everyday practitioners to bring you the stories, the science, and the exploration that will help you understand why this ancient practice is more relevant and important today than ever before. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to share today's interview with you. We talk with my old friend and meditation teacher, Igal Harmelin Moria. But before we jump in, I want to thank all of you who have left us a rating and a review. That's so helpful to us, and I want you to know how grateful I am. And thank you for taking the time out of your super busy schedule, I know you're all busy, to listen to the show. And if you haven't left a rating or a review, please head on over to iTunes and let me know what you think of the show. I read every comment and I relish the chance to hear from you. So back to the interview. I've known Igal for 17 years. We lived in a meditation ashram together for over a decade, and during that time we were even roommates. We had a very strict teacher, and we supported each other through some challenging times. Igal, he's really like an older brother to me. And I wanted you to meet him because after meditating for over 40 years, he started meditating in 1973. He has a lot to share. Lessons, stories, tips, in-depth explanations of tricky topics. And you're going to learn what it's like to meditate in an armored personnel carrier in the middle of a war. But I guess more than anything... When you back away from the details, I think it's Agal's passion and his commitment to meditation that really comes through this interview more than anything else. And I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Now let's get right into the show. So hello, everybody. And I am so happy to have my very good friend, Agal, joining us today. And Agal, I want to welcome you to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So... Egal, how long have you actually been meditating and, and when did you start? Thanks for, for this. It's very nice, Morgan, to, to be asked that because it brings me very pleasant, albeit very old memories. I started in 1973. I was in 15th of July, 1973. I was serving as a military correspondent in the Israeli army as part of my military duty. And I remember that day in Tel Aviv where I actually got my first instruction of meditation. It was a very important day. I hardly ever missed a day. There was hardly a day in my life where I never, where I did not meditate. By the way, that was a year before I was born. I'm, I'm 40, <laughs> 40 years old now and I was born May 10th, 1974. So that was just about almost a year minus two months well that was, was that born. is one more reason to for me to feel superior to you Morgan <laughs> that's right exactly well and so 
How long have you then actually been teaching meditation? Very soon after starting meditation, I realized, wow, this is very serious stuff. I was a bit casual going into it. There was a friend who was doing it, and I wanted to to do this, but I didn't think it would be like uh, earth-shattering or turn my world upside down, but it did. It actually did. It really opened my awareness in a very profound manner, and I uh, realized the the potential of it. I should say it gave me a glimpse, I should say, to be more fair, of how my life could be turned and be made completely different. But those glimpses were very powerful. And at the time, the system of meditation that I was following at the time was Transcendental Meditation, which was taught by Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, who was probably one of the most influential teachers of meditation of the, the second half of the 20th century. Absolutely. And so I remember first of all, being very struck by the result of meditation myself. And then I went on a retreat, on a short few-day retreat, during which, I, for the first time, I heard him talk. And he was talking about cosmic consciousness. And as I heard him, I had a very strong, one of those clear, one of those moments of clarity where I kind of saw my future and there was a decision that was made there, okay, I'm going to become a teacher of this meditation and I'm going to work closely with this man. And so it was. And so I, within a year and a half, as soon as the army allowed me, I basically left Israel for six months and uh, took an intense teacher training course of Transcendental Meditation. And then I was made a teacher by him. And that was sometime in August of 1975. So not long after you started meditation, about a year later, you started teaching it. Uh, two, yeah, it was, it was two years later. And it was a very lucky time because at that time, just the interest in meditation just really woke up in Israel. And uh, not just mm. in Israel, also in America. It was, uh, it was just exploding. Everybody wanted to learn TM. This is 1975, and I remember in the U.S. alone, about 30,000 people were learning TM every month during those days. And Maharshi That's was... That's amazing. He was and, a, and of course, Agal, TM was the mode of meditation that was popularized by the Beatles in when the late 60s? Yeah, they they spent they had a very short stint with Maharshi, but of course, because everything the Beatles the Beatles did was amplified like a millionfold. If they coughed or sneezed or yawned, then it was uh, sensational news right. all over the world. The fact that they started this particular system of meditation was pivotal in popularizing TM. Yes. Great. Now let's jump back. I interrupted you there. So you were describing that upwards of 30,000 people, a, a, what did you say, a week or a 30, month? 30,000 people a month were learning TM in the U.S. alone in 1975. You know, over the years, Dindris dwindled quite a bit. But this is, it was just all the rage at that time, just giving you the picture of, of how it was when I finished my teacher training uh, course, there was a lot of uh, interest in this particular system, yes. Now, did you come to Iowa or did you come to the United States to Maharishi's uh, university to learn and teach? Actually, in the years that I was with Maharshi, which was almost 25 years, 
I was, I, you know, just, I joined Maharshi and I saw the world, you know, it's just like join the Navy, see the world. It was just really join Maharshi and see the world. I was everywhere teaching TM. I was in the Philippines, in India, in the Ukraine, in Zaire, in Europe, in the United States. I was basically all over the place. And of course, in Israel. So in many places, the most time I spent with him physically was in Holland. I was in Holland for about 10 years and most of that time he was there. Agal, you referred, when, when you started this story, you referred to benefits that you yourself had experienced when you started meditating. This, this was before you became a teacher. Why did you start meditating? Before I answer you directly, Morgan, I, I want to say that, you know, people have a zillion different reasons why they start meditating. Maybe some people start because uh, their boyfriend or girlfriend meditates and they want to do it with them. Some people start because the doctor tells them it'll be good for lowering their blood pressure or lowering, lowering their anxiety. Some people start because they think they'll make them concentrate better. Some people start because a priest tells them it's very good for their uh, spiritual life, a priest or a rabbi or, a, or, a, or some monk. And some people start for just because they, they, they feel it's a good idea. You know, there's so many motivations. Mine was kind of a mixture of many, but the thing is that I was very interested in, in becoming more aware more conscious. I was very uh, deeply aware of the fact that I was not aware enough. <laughs> it's kind of a, right. uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of a roundabout way of, of saying this, but I just realized that a lot of what I do and what we do, not me personally, but a lot of what society does, a lot of the people in society, we, we, we operate like automatons, you know, we just like robots. We, we respond to certain like, social clues and commercial clues and cultural clues and we just respond to them and we don't really, uh, we're not even aware to the degree to which uh, we operate automatically. So that was a very big part of why I wanted to start meditating. I was not sure that just meditation alone would do it, but at least meditation seemed like a very important part of it. So that's why I started. Just to try and encapsulate what you said, God, that you felt there were certain ways that you saw how you were showing up in your life was unconscious, unaware, conditioned by social norms, cultural cultural norms. And for you, meditation seemed to be a pathway to freedom from those deeply ingrained habits. In essence, is that what you're saying? Yeah, and in fact, before I even was thinking of freedom, before that there was the thought of just to become aware of those patterns because I thought yeah. because even before even be free of them, just just know what's really going on. What's what really makes me tick? What why is it really that I operate the way that I operate and not just me? People around me psychological reasons alone, which is in our culture, usually we explain everything, we try to explain everything away through psychology, they right. didn't seem to satisfy me. 
I said that there, there must be deeper reasons why we operate or there must be deeper things. There must be a deeper awareness of, of what's actually going on than just explained away by psychology. This is not to ditch psychology in any way, but just to say that I, I was looking for a different approach to that awareness. That's great. That's really clear. So, and then when you started, what did you experience? What happened? Well, now, now it gets interesting because, you know, I really didn't know what to expect. And I was, I went very skeptical. Sorry to interrupt you there, Gal, but would you say it's accurate that at this time in the late sixties, early seventies, that the impulse you were responding to, that that was something that was also in the cultural zeitgeist is that true or was this more in Israel at the time more of a, a unique and unconventional thing to do? It was very unconventional in Israel. I remember that at the time when I was telling people that I was doing meditation, most people, unlike today, most people didn't know what the heck I was talking about. But I still think that I was responding to some deep cultural currents that were mm -hmm. uh, kind of operating internationally. There was, yeah. uh, especially in America, but not only in America, a lot of people were just seeking something deeper. It was definitely part of the zeitgeist. And uh, I remember also being affected by the movie Woodstock, which came to Israel and I was almost shocked by because it was so different. These were times in which you didn't have the internet and the instantaneous uh, transmission of memes and of cultural, you know, like like if something, if, if a record was coming out in the U.S. and was very popular and it was all the rage, it would take sometimes two months before it would come to Israel unless you had somebody who, who shipped it to you. So cultural memes traveled much more slowly. And that, that word you're using, meme, can you just quickly define that for people? Like when you refer to a cultural meme, that's yeah. like an idea. Is that right? Uh, or a yeah, like something that takes over. Like there's, uh, it was uh, a term that co coined by Richard Dawkins to express the transfer of cultural trends in the same way that a gene controls the transfer of genetic trends. So, for example... Thank, thank you. Yes. So memes now, they are get transmitted around the world, worldwide, like almost overnight, like people pouring ice over themselves for certain charity uh, organization. <laughs> that just, yeah. just goes around the world. We call it virally now. At that yes. time, at that time, there was no instrument for that. I mean, uh, we still were community, you know, you would still write a letter to somebody in the United States from Israel and then you'd put it in an aerogram and then it'll take 10 days to go there and 10 days afterwards you'd get a response. So that's kind of the tempo of communications at that time. Much of what happens in the 60s in the United States we read about and we saw some movies and uh, like Woodstock and of course we bought the records and we were exposed to the music. Mm -hmm. But it took some time for it to catch here. I would say, I don't want to say that I was a pioneer by any means, but I would say it was a bit exceptional at that time for somebody to be so interested in meditation. Although very quickly it became, uh, like within a year or two, it was already kind of all over the place. Got it. Great. I took you off course there. You were about to share with us about what you actually experienced when you started. 
Yes. So uh, this was very interesting. As I said, I did not know what to expect. I was still a teenager and I was quite uh, sarcastic. And as teenagers often do, I thought I knew better than anybody else and definitely better than the teachers. And so I was very, how to say, reserved and, and even critical during the course. But then as I started meditating more and more, I realized people ask me, what are you experiencing? And curiously enough, the only thing that came to my mind were verses from the Psalms. And it's almost like I did not have in my daily vocabulary accurate enough descriptions to describe my experience of my meditation and I had to resort to the Psalms, which we were forced to study, because in Israel, even in secular schools, which is where I went to, you're forced to study the, the Bible in the original from age 7 to age 18, basically, as part of your curriculum. So I had that vocabulary available to me, luckily, and that's how mm -hmm. I started describing my experience. And it was a very deep experience of being rooted in something bigger, being connected to something that was not seen, to something transcendental. And that's what I felt. And that definitely was something that was very important in my life at the time because it was like suddenly not feeling like a leaf in the wind, but more like, like rooted. That was basically the experience. When you use the word transcendental, what does that mean to you? And for our listeners, when you say that, what is that experience? Yeah, it's a good question, Morgan. It's something that does not come from the sensory and mental world. Mm -hmm. Any meditation really, if it's worth your time, then should give you sooner or later some glimpse of that part of yourself which is beyond time and space. And that part of yourself, there's many ways to call it, and none of the ways to call it would do it justice. And one way of referring to it is that which is transcendental, that which is beyond, that part of you which is always perfect, that part of you which does not change, that part of you which is always awake, even when you are asleep, that part of you which is always unchanging and calm and quiet, even when you're, you feel stormy regular practice of meditation and whatever system of meditation you do, if it's a solid system of meditation, there's so many approaches to that, with time roots you more deeply in that field, in that, if we can even call it field. That transcendental space or self that you're yeah. referring to. Yes. It is, as you say, it is self, big S, like capital S. It's an experience of something because normally, I mean, a normal waking state experience of self could be, as some philosophers said, a human being is just a heap of impressions. 
with meditation, not only through meditation, but meditation is one way in which you can get in touch with something which is much deeper than that, which is the essence of your own consciousness, the essence of your own self. Anything you can say about this won't do it justice. It is called transcendental because transcendental to transcend means to go beyond because it is beyond your daily experience. It's beyond your mental, emotional, physical realm of experience. Another question. You've taught a few different styles of meditation. When you were teaching transcendental meditation, you taught a mantra-based approach to meditation. You and I together, I've known you for over 15 years, I think, and we lived together at a yoga and meditation ashram for a lot of that time together as students of evolutionary enlightenment. And in that context, you taught and practiced a more open or free awareness approach to meditation. And now you've come back to your Jewish roots in some respects, and you're, you're teaching in that context. I'd love it if you could say a little bit for our listeners about each style of meditation, because they're all different, and what the actual practice is, respectively, in all of those contexts. And also, if you could speak to the pros and cons as you experience them of each one. Thanks, Morgan. That's a big topic, and yeah. I'll try to somehow condense this. In some way, it is easy to condense this if I evade the question. <laughs> <laughs> by saying something that Go for it. Uh, that in some way it doesn't really matter what meditation you use, whether it's, you know, from 40-some years of meditation, doing it and trying different styles, I can say that the most important thing about meditation is that you're really serious about it. If it's a good system of meditation, that's a very big, question, what does it mean, a good system of meditation? But we can maybe go into that. But if it's a system of meditation that's profound, that makes sense to you, and that stirs your soul, and then you say, wow, this is something very interesting, then go for it. Really go for it. Be very, very serious about it. And like anything you're very serious about, if you really devote your time and energy and focus on it and you study, then you just become good at it. Is it important that it's a meditation with a mantra? Is it important that it's a meditation like Vipassana on, breath, on breathing? Is it important that you do a meditation like Eckhart Tolle's? Or is it in the context of Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism? I'd say whatever speaks to you, whatever makes sense to you, Go for it, and then really go for it. You know, I just want to illustrate something of how serious I was about meditation. It will sound very dramatic, but it's a true story, and it can give you some idea. You know, as I said, I started meditating in 1973. Just a few months after I started meditating, in October of 1973, while I was still serving in the Army as a military correspondent, the war broke out, the October 73 war between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Syria. And 
for various reasons, I found myself in the front. And I, I'm sure you remember, Morgan, I showed you all those pictures of myself as a soldier with all these, as a correspondent, I, I had all those pictures, all, the, all these generals. And these were serious battles that I witnessed. I saw you as a soldier standing next to Ariel Sharon. Right. But I mean, it's not that I had any business being there. I was just a correspondent and he was a kind of a nice picture to have, but <laughs> it wasn't like he knew who I was or anything. But I want to tell a particular story from that because for two or three days, I found myself in a troop carrier with 12 people and that troop carrier stood on a hill that overlooked and saw a lot of the battles. And that troop carrier. What is a, what is a troop carrier? Just troop carrier is an armored is an armored vehicle. It has these. How do you call these? You know, not wheels, but like a tank. What does a tank have? It's not wheels. It's these chains that. Yeah, the treads. Yeah, so it has these treads, but it doesn't have. It's just to carry infantry. It's not meant to do to to engage in battles. It's just to to Got carry. It. So. Anyway, this was an American troop carrier, actually, and these th and it was just stationed on a hill where we could observe the battle. And the, I was next to an artillery officer who needed to see what's going on, where the bombs was falling, so he could report to this uh, battery of guns, of heavy artillery guns in the back, uh, to be you know a little bit more to the left, a little bit more to the right, like that. And I was just a new meditator. And these were very extreme situations. We were being bombarded and all, and uh, this was in the middle of a battle. But, you know, when it came, because I didn't really have a fighting duty on that, in that troop. I was just observing. When it came time to meditate, and I was at the time doing 20 minutes twice a day, I sat on the metal floor of that troop carrier, and I crossed my legs, and I meditated. And people were laughing at me, and it was very crowded, and people were sometimes bumping into me, and there was huge noise uh, from the bombs, and there was three wireless radios being very loud in that troop carriers all at the same time. But I was meditating because it was very important mm. to me. I was very serious That's about it. And, and I don't know that today I would be crazy enough to meditate in those conditions. But this is to tell you how committed I was. And I think if you come to this kind of commitment, then at one point, meditation just responds. <laughs> just like it just responds and something starts mm. happening. That's an amazing story. I'm telling yeah. this story only to just basically emphasize the point that it's not the system of meditation. It's really your attitude, your tenacity, and your insistence that, look, I understand that there's something here, that the world as I live it is a world that I live it a little bit in a robotic manner, that however independent I feel that I am, I really don't really totally am in control or very little in control. And I want to just basically know what is really going on here. And if you really want that, and you then you embrace that system of meditation with a certain kind of oomph and you just go for it. And that's, I think that's, that, that is what I, I wanted to convey. That's fantastic. I appreciate it. It's a great response. And if you'd be willing because I know we have a lot of people who really are quite new to meditation. There are different kinds of meditation and approaches to meditation. It'd be great if you could just 
give a little summary of each, like what, what you did and the value of each, just to give people a flavor of it. And everyone, let's hold that in the context that Agal really expressed, which is that even before you choose your meditation practice or you consider switching your meditation practice, we're hearing from someone who's been meditating for 40 years beyond all these different approaches, there's something more fundamental, more primary, which has to do with giving your all, giving your heart to what you're doing. And that's really where the benefits are coming from. Is that, do I understand that correctly, Agal? Sure, Morgan, that's exactly what I was trying to convey. But uh, to be more specific about your question, so basically a mantra meditation, and there's different kinds of mantra meditations. And this is TM. So TM is one kind of mantra meditation. It's not the only one. I mean, it's one mantra meditation is TM. So specifically about TM, the whole idea is a mantra would be a sound and a sound that is is supposedly picked for its vibrational qualities rather than for its meaning. And then TM, as they say it, it's both the sound and the method of using it. And the method of using it with TM is such that the sound basically, how to say, it's a vehicle to take your mind to deeper and more quieter levels of itself and then to transcend the mind altogether through that vehicle, leave that vehicle behind and experience that transcendental field, your pure consciousness, so to speak. So that's one way of doing it. That's one meditation, one way of doing it. And however, however way you want to say it, even though some TM people will not like me saying this, but I think it should be said that the context for TM really is what we would call a Hindu context or a Vedic context. And it's a very beautiful context. And if that context attracts you and nourishes you, then TM can be a fantastic tool. What do you mean when you say that it's a Hindu or a Vedic context, just even in a sentence or two when you, when you say that? What is that? Well, there's mean? a very beautiful ceremony when you start TM that the teacher, before he gives you his man, your mantra, your sound, he does this very beautiful ceremony that is really very traditional ceremony in which he kind of makes offerings to all the traditional masters that came before him. And as a representative of a very old tradition that passed this knowledge, it's a Vedic tradition. It's a very old tradition to which Maharshi was proudly relating himself to. That's great. That's helpful. Yeah. So they emphasize the scientific benefits of it, but it is a meditation that comes from the Hindu tradition as opposed to, for example, another tradition that is very popular now, probably the most popular uh, system of meditation right now in the world, in the Western world at least, it's what's called mindfulness meditation or vipassana, which comes from the Buddhist tradition. The reason it's taken so much popularity is, I think, firstly because it's taught almost for free, as opposed to TM, which is actually very, very expensive and maybe even too expensive, if I may say so, uh, <laughs> yeah. just to call a spade a spade. And also it was taught in a different spirit, this very Buddhist spirit of sharing and helping. And it's also a meditation that's not based on mantra, 
because I think it comes also from the Buddhist emphasis that the ultimate reality is emptiness. It basically, the purpose of Buddhist meditation is more to get you out of your mind through focusing on the breathing or focusing on the body in some in one way or the other. And I'm not attempting now to say too much about how to meditate in that or any other meditation, but that's kind of like the direction. Buddhist meditation is also meant to make you more aware of what makes you tick, really, of all the ways in which you are conditioned and very directly. And that's why it's called mindfulness also. One Go ahead. quick clarifying question there, Gal. When you say... It's really designed to help you understand what makes you tick. So can for, we just get, get inside that a little bit and, and can you just briefly unpack that? So for example, in certain ways, every one of us has these blind spots where when you get into certain situations, particular situation, push your buttons in a particular way and you be and you respond in some in some unconscious manner. And you keep telling yourself, oh, I shouldn't do this. And then, but next situation, mm -hmm. next time you're in the same situation, you do exactly the same thing. Right. We all know that, right? Right. This kind of meditation, it's at least theoretically supposed to make you more aware of not necessarily psychologically explain what happens, but to make you more aware, for example, what happens in your body when you get into those situations. And by shifting your awareness on what happens to the body in those situations, you can just start being more aware, oh, this kind of emotion rises as a result of this sensation coming from here. And you can just put your attention maybe on that sensation and then learn how to curb all those unconscious responses in this or that way. Got it. That's brilliant. Thank you. And so that's the Buddhist kind of approach to meditation. That's one aspect of it. And, and Buddhism, now I should say, I'm learning as I'm researching more and more, I'm learning that in Buddhism, actually, there's so, so many systems of meditation. I mean, there's like, there's zillions approaches to meditation. But they're all meant at the same thing, include and also all the other meditations. All the systems of meditations are made to make you more aware. So more aware of this, more aware of that. The bottom line is more aware. Yeah, yeah there are so many uh, Buddhist schools, teachers, traditions, all that come under the rubric of Buddhism, the tradition of Buddhism. And you were really speaking to mindfulness is probably right now the most popular. It's really exploding. Mm -hmm. into mainstream culture, you have things like mindfulness-based stress reduction becoming very popular, a lot of new research emerging, different apps that are helping people to meditate. So I appreciate you speaking to that one in particular because it is probably the most popular and, and also recognizable form in mainstream right now. Right. And then you asked about the meditation that I was teaching when we were both students of evolutionary enlightenment, or to be more specific, students of uh, spiritual teacher Andrew Cohen. And he had a very interesting, very no-nonsense method of meditation, which I think is a very powerful method of meditation, which is basically how to be objective 
towards your mental experience. And the way he would make you do that is basically, first of all, to be still. And think about it. When you're still, it goes exactly the opposite of a conditioned response to consciousness because the conditioned response to consciousness, when it itches your scratch, when you feel like eating something, you get up and you walk to the fridge and you do it all these things very automatically. So the first thing is you do, if you just sit still, even just five minutes, that's a powerful meditation because everything in you wants to move all the time. And if, if you try to sit still for five minutes and you see how challenging that can be, you realize how automatic we all, all the time are tending to move. You sit still, and then on top of that, if you're just basically very relaxed, and again, then you realize how much tension usually there is in the body, and you just sit still and you relax, and then you pay attention to have no relationship to the content of your mind and consciousness. And these three elements, this is a very powerful way of meditating and uh, very fruitful, and anybody can do it in principle. The other system of meditation you asked me about is the Jewish meditation. There are all kinds of Jewish meditations that you find in the old Kabbalistic books, but they're very elaborate, they're very difficult. They cater for medieval minds. And when I say medieval minds, because they came out of the medieval philosophical and mystical context. M medieval, you said. Yeah, medieval. So, yes, yeah. gotcha. There's very few people who really, really know how to do them. But in the Hasidic tradition, there's all kinds of systems of meditation that have emerged. And unfortunately, it is one of the heartbreaking things is many of the greatest experts in Hasidic meditation actually were killed in World War II. One of them was the great... Uh, rabbi from Piacentia. He's called the Admor from Piacentia and he who died in the Varsa ghetto. And I'm just starting to be aware of his beautiful meditative texts that are getting some popularity in the Jewish world right now. He's being rediscovered. What a lot of people in the Jewish world are trying to do now is to revive the spiritual side of Judaism, not just the religion, but as a spiritual path, for which a lot of Jews go now to Buddhism and Hinduism to search. And they don't actually shy away from adopting some Buddhist-based meditations or meditations from other traditions and give them and teach them in a Jewish context in order to, for people to, to enrich their Jewish life. And that's one thing I am uh, somehow involved with yeah, at the moment. Some of the folks in our audience are new to meditation. And, you know, maybe they've been meditating, maybe they're just starting, maybe they've been meditating for a few months, even a year or two. Do you have any advice or words of wisdom as we wrap up or tips you'd like to share with them before we wrap up the show? Yes, gladly. First of all, just to balance out what I said before, because what I said before, I, I gave you an example of how unbelievably focused, motivated, and intent I was about really doing meditation. And I said this kind of intensity is needed. And in the same stroke, I would say, take it easy. <laughs> take it easy. Take it easy in the sense of start slow and just build up. 
just like in running, if you want to run a marathon and if you start running very fast, you can actually very, you know, those who do it, they usually don't last. Slow and steady wins the race. So start with something that is simple and just spend, just be regular. Be, do 15, 20 minutes a day or even 10 minutes a day for that matter. But just do it every day and be very regular about it. Just as you brush your teeth in the morning, as part of your routine, make sure it just gets in there. And that is probably the best way to start. It's uh, always good also to practice with other people, not to do alone, at the first, especially in the beginning. It's always good to seek out some, some club or some meetup groups that meet to meditate together and who help each other and who support each other. It's always good because the world... Right now, it's not set up to support your meditative practice. It's support to take you out of meditation, into consuming more, into enjoying more, into running around, into achieving more. So create a situation in which you can be with other people and meditate. Once in a while, if you can, go on a retreat, even if it's a three-day retreat or a two-day retreat and find out in your area if there's something, some of those retreats are not very expensive. And sometimes if you're a student, there's all kinds of organization who give even some scholarship for a Vipassana retreat or another kind of retreat. Like everything else, you need to surround yourself with a support group and you need to start small and uh, go on Morgan's site, Morgan Dix's site about meditation because in your site, it's such a wonderful, way of, even if you don't have people to support you necessarily in your environment, that you can all the time get involved with articles. And, and Morgan is such a, a long-time meditator, such a committed meditator. And so you are, you're a wonderful resource for that. Thanks so much. That's kind of you to say, Agal. Sure. And I can only say one thing also, another thing. I'm now 60 and there's a lot of things I've done in my life. And Meditation has been a constant companion, an unbelievable treasure, a incredible support. A I, my life would look completely different now had I not been meditating. I'm extremely grateful for the fact that I was inspired to start meditating in in an early age when I was 19, and I was so serious about it over the years. I think it was the greatest gift that of all the things that I've done in my life, it was by far the the most influential and important. You can't get a more powerful endorsement than that. Just to recap, Igal, so you said take it easy, start simple, meditate with other people, go on a retreat, and fantastic. How can people learn more about you, the work that you're doing? Um, is there someplace online people can, can follow you or, or learn a little bit more about what you're up to? Okay, so... As you know, I'm kind of in between. <laughs> I'm in yes. between continents and in between stages in my life. And so people who are interested in a Jewish kind of uh, approach uh, to script and meditate, rather a meditative approach to Judaism can read a few things that for 
a while I was writing regularly on my blog, which was, the blog is igodblog.org. And I was writing some commentaries on the on a weekly portion of the Torah from a meditative point of view. Uh, unfortunately, all kinds of things happened in my life that I had to stop doing that regularly, but there's been there's a lot of material there that uh, those who are interested in Judaism and in meditation may find interesting. If people are interested to contact me, they can either do it through that blog or they can do it through you because we are in touch all the time. So, Egal, it has been such a pleasure, and thank you for coming on the show, and you've given us a lot to think about, but also a lot a lot of education, and we really appreciate it, Egal. Thank you so much. Well, thanks a lot, Morgan, and I hope people derive some benefit from it. I'll be interested to listen to it myself now. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Uh, take care, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yes. Bye-bye. Hey there. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Egal. If you want to learn more about Egal's work, you can head on over to igodblog.com. You can get the link for that and other resources we mentioned in the show in the show notes. And you can find those at aboutmeditation.com slash podcast. That's aboutmeditation.com slash podcast. Also, this show was sponsored by our free how to Meditate mini course. Learn meditation in five easy lessons. You can sign up over at aboutmeditation.com. So thank you guys so much for listening. If you like the show, please let us know. I'd love to hear from you. You can head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. That also helps us get exposed to a lot more people. And as always, we like to end with a quote, and today we're going to end with a quote from the Beatles drummer Ringo Starr, who says, At the end of the day, I can end up just totally wacky because I've made mountains out of molehills. With meditation, I can keep them as molehills. <laughs>